Hello, this is Jeff Treisman. This is Matt Schmidt. And you're listening to Impolitik. Welcome to Impolitik. We begin this episode by listening to congressional testimony by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, delivered on June 23rd, 2021. During testimony, Republican Representative Matt Gates had asked the Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin about critical race theorists in the ranks of the U.S. military. General Milley had asked for an opportunity to respond as well. However, Representative Gates denied his request to speak. Representative Christy Houlihan was then given the opportunity to pose questions, but decided to instead cede her time and allow General Milley to directly respond to Matt Gates's question. Let's listen in to the general's remarks. First of all, on the issue of critical race theory, et cetera, I'll obviously have to get much smarter on whatever the theory is. Um, but I do think it's important, actually, uh, for those of us in uniform to be open-minded and be widely read. And the United States Military Academy is a university. Uh, and it is important that we train and we understand. Uh, and I, I want to understand white rage. And I'm white. And I want to understand it. So what is it that caused thousands of people to assault this building and try to overturn the Constitution of the United States of America? What caused that? I want to find that out. I want to maintain an open mind here, and I do want to analyze it. It's important that we understand that because our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and guardians, they come from the American people. So it is important that the leaders now and in the future do understand it. I've read Mao Zedong. I've read, I've read Karl Marx. I've read Lenin. That doesn't make me a communist. So what is wrong with understanding, having some situational understanding about the country for which we are here to defend? And I personally find it offensive that we are accusing the United States military, our general officers, our commissioned, non-commissioned officers of being, quote, woke or something else because we're studying some theories that are out there. That was started at Harvard Law School years ago, and it proposed that there were laws in the United States, antebellum laws prior to the Civil War, that led to uh, a power differential with African Americans that were three-quarters of a human being when this country was formed. And then we had a civil war and emancipation proclamation to change it, and we brought it up to the Civil Rights Act in 1964. It took another 100 years to change that. So look it, I do want to know, and I respect your service, and you and I are both Green Berets, but I want to know, and it matters to our military and the discipline and cohesion of this military, and I thank you for the opportunity to make a comment on that. Thank you, General. To help us make sense of General Milley's remarks, diversity and quote-unquote wokeness in the U.S. military, we are joined today by Professor Jason Lyle of Dartmouth University. Professor Lyle is the inaugural James Wright Chair of Transnational Studies and Associate Professor in the Government Department. He also directs the Political Violence Field Lab at the John Sloan Dickey Center for International Understanding. His research examines the effects and effectiveness of political violence in civil and conventional wars. His research has appeared in several top academic journals and is the author of Divided Armies, published by Princeton University Press, which has received numerous awards and accolades. And on a more personal note, I'm delighted to have Professor Lyle as today's guest. I've been a longtime fan of his research. And so with that, Professor, welcome to Empolitik. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I want to begin with, obviously, your book, uh, divided armies. And I'm curious to know, and I'm sure our listeners are too, uh, what was the, the origin 
right? That, that sparked the, the intellectual curiosity of the book. And then, you know, subsequently, well, what is the, the fundamental argument or thesis that you, you propose in the book? Sure. I mean, like a lot of my scholarship, uh, it's by accident that I stumbled on this topic. So I've always been interested in, in military effectiveness. Um, but I found myself in Afghanistan, like a lot of people have. And uh, I was sitting on a, a U.S. Army base um, just south of Kabul. And uh, I was watching the Afghan army being stood up. So this is in 2009 was my first trip over. Uh, and I was sort of shuttling between this training facility and um, the ISAF headquarters in, in downtown Kabul. And at the headquarters, I would sit in in briefings where they would talk about the new Afghan army being stood up and it was amazing and they were being well-trained and they were getting all the equipment they needed and this sort of new Afghan was being generated. And that was gonna be the American exit strategy. And then I would go home at night and, and you know, lived at this base and um, I would see the Afghan army actually being trained up. And it was um, full of barrack riots and hazing and sexual abuse and corruption and uh, nothing that looked like a coherent army to me. And, uh, and so when I came out of that first trip in 2009, I sort of sat down and said, well, do we have any findings on diversity and what that means for battlefield effectiveness or, or how we create these armies. And at the time, we, you know, we really didn't. Our battlefield performance or military effectiveness literature was, and I think arguably still focused on technology, material factors, things like that. And so I, I just started, started writing a little bit and I looked around for data and there weren't really any data on inequality or diversity or any of this stuff. And so we just started collecting data. I built a, a, a basically a training facility at Yale where we brought students um, who worked over the summer or through the year to collect new data on, on battlefield performance to try and test the sort of intuition that had come out of living in this Afghan base. And so I would go back and forth between, uh, between sort of the dry academic kind of literature and then I'd go back into Afghanistan, which is where my field site was. And I would check back in with the Afghan army, you know, when we see desertion and things like that. And I would say, I think this is tied to maybe the inequality in the ranks, diversity in the ranks. And then that's sort of how the book kind of formed. Now, I have to say, when I started the book, I thought this was kind of going to be like a three-year thing, right? So, you know, one year to form the question, one year to collect the data, one year to write this thing up, and then, you know, publish to fame and glory and everything like that. And it took about 10 years. So um, it was a lot longer than I, I imagined. Um, but the basic gist of the argument is actually really quite simple. Uh, it's just this notion that um, diversity within the ranks, within your army, actually matters for battlefield performance. And in particular, it's how the state is treating the various ethnic groups that comprise the army that will dictate how they fight. So the larger your army, the larger the share of your army that's composed of ethnic or racial groups that's being discriminated against or being repressed by the state, the worse your army is going to perform on the battlefield. And in some ways your fate is sealed uh, before the battle actually begins because it's the pre-war treatment of these ethnic groups that make up the army that will dictate how it fights. And you know, how, how do we sort of measure that? Well, we look at lots of sort of cross national um, quantitative indicators like desertion rates, defection rates, um, your loss exchange ratios, use of violence against your own soldiers. And the sort of general pattern is clear across all the measures. The more your army is unequal, in the sense that the more it's divided, uh, the worse it's going to perform on the battlefield. And, and we test that 
uh, quantitatively from 1800 up till now, almost uh, qualitative case studies from those that various time periods, um, some micro level data from the, the Eastern Front uh, and World War II on the Soviet side from archival records. And all the data is also generally tracking in this one direction, which is, again, the, the more unequal, the more divided your army, the worse it's going to do. Uh, and it's very hard to adjust once that's sort of baked into your army. There isn't sort of like band-aid solutions you can put on in the middle of the war. Um, your, your fate is often sealed before you actually start the fighting. Can I, uh, can I jump in here with a question? I know you only go from 1800. Um, yeah. I, I'll sort of ask you to split that up here. What about ancient armies, right? They, they had slaves, right? They had, they had large amounts of ethnic minorities, but the majority of the army. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, for sure. Um, so, so this is one of the dreams of the books. I have to say, like, the book is enormous, right? So it's like 400 and some odd pages. This is only about half of the material, right? My editor's like, no way, right? You got you to gotta cut somewhere. So one of the cuts was to start at 1800 and move up, which is already in some ways ambitious. It's a couple hundred years of history. But, um, but absolutely, right? We could go farther back. Most armies, most of the time, have been mixtures of different ethnic groups, different statuses. You mentioned slaves. There's also roles for mercenaries, right? There's roles for other people being sort of drafted and forcibly, maybe not slaves, but, but forcibly impressed in. Uh, and, and so I honestly don't know. And a part of what the question is for me is, do we think about political communities in the same way now as we did back then, right? So if it's really your government's treatment of these different groups and you have a group identity and it says you're being repressed, did people back in ancient times have that same group identity? Did they clearly identify as an ethnic group and see themselves as being segregated against or victimized by the state? If they did, I think that this logic translates back. Uh, and so you would imagine that armies that are more free or less, um, you know, less conscripted in or forcibly conscripted in are going to do better than, than armies that are not. But it's an empirical proposition that we need to go back and test. That's fascinating. What about 1800 and forward, right? What about the, the creation of nationalism and this, this issue now? How do you understand that? Yeah, so this is where the, I think the argument gets its traction. We are living in an age of nationalism, right? We are you know, operating in this role where groups have clear identities, right? And they, they get that identity in part by being repressed by the state or marginalized by the state. Uh, and so really since 1800, I think the argument gets uh, a ton of traction. The trick here now is a lot of people say, well, maybe ethnicity is on the way out. Right? Maybe we don't identify ourselves. Maybe we've transcended that. And I think recent events in, in Russia, Ukraine and others, I don't think this is going anywhere. This sort of rise of tribalism in the United States and other places, uh, I think means that ethnicity is really um, here to stay. The first question I have is kind of related to um, the Census Bureau estimates that whites in the United States are projected to become a minority, um, you know, roughly within the next 20 years. So I want to know then with specifically with the United States is diversity in the military and that can be ethnic, that can be racial, that can be ideological, that can be cultural, however you want to kind of uh, tackle this question. Is that considered a strength in terms of America's uh, readiness to win wars? Absolutely. So I think, and I think the military recognizes diversity as a strength. And I think what's interesting now is that you have um, pressure from the outside on the military, sort of this um, anti-woke agenda now coming in, right? Partly because of demographic trends in the States and, and, and things like that. 
where people are challenging diversity at exactly the moment when diversity and inclusion are becoming increasingly important on the battlefield. And I think the Russian army, and not to, not to jump ahead, but I think the Russian army is giving you a, a classic example of what happens in this modern age of incredibly lethal weapons when you don't have a diverse and inclusive, you have to have the inclusion part um, in your army, right? You're going to pay huge battlefield costs. And so right now the U.S. army is mirroring many of the trends in broader society, right? It's becoming a minority majority army. It's going to have to deal with the issue of diversity and inclusion in a way that it hasn't had to in the past. Uh, and it's going to get this answer right, because the costs for not getting it right are going up as the technology on the battlefield get more lethal. So wouldn't we predict that because of that, that the United States at some point, its military is going to be weakened by the diversity, not strengthened? Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say weakened by diversity. I think the, the trick here is when we look at the numbers, it's not your battlefield performance isn't really a function of how many different groups you've got. It's how the state's treating them. So you could have like 10 different groups inside your army, but if they're all treated equally by the state in terms of they're all full citizens of the state, then you don't have a problem. That diversity is not creating a problem. So, wait, so this, is, this is like saying, right, that what matters is their identity. Right. If they think of themselves as citizens, they're treated well enough to feel like citizens in the eyes of the state. It doesn't matter if there's 10 or 20 groups. Exactly. It, but it's, it's here. It's what the state is doing to them. Right. It's not just necessarily how do I feel, but it's also what is the state actively doing? So if the state is actively discriminating against a group, that's going to be a problem. Um, if it's actively or violently repressing them, that's going to be a problem again. But, yeah, you're right. It's not, you know, if you have 10 groups or five it doesn't really matter for battlefield performance. It just, just on the margins, it does a little bit, but, but most of this is driven by your inclusion, which I think gets so no, lost another debate. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, this gets lost in a diversity where a lot of the arguments now are either diversity hurts a military or, Hey, how do we get better? Well, we just add diversity, right? Well, the, the hard thing is actually the inclusion piece, not the diversity piece, right? You really have to have the inclusion side too. So, I used to teach at the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff School College. And one thing that always struck me were the fact that the majority of the colonels that showed up seemed to be 6'4 and very white. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I wonder, again, is that, is that your experience looking at, at the U.S.? Is there this bifurcation, at least in the officer corps, as you go up? Yeah, and this is the inclusion piece. Right. So the, the U.S. military is an incredibly diverse institution and on some measures more diverse than American society writ large, but not at the senior officer levels, not at the general officer level, not yet anyway. Uh, and, and so it's slowly changing. But those are deep structural issues of like who gets promoted, who gets retained, who leaves early. What does the criminal justice system in the military look like, for example, and who gets punished and who doesn't? Um, there's a lot of sort of deep issues about who gets promoted and who doesn't that, that haven't been resolved yet. And so diversity is easy in some ways because America is diverse and you can slap, you know, different recruiting ads with different faces of different kinds of people and say, well, we did the diversity thing, check the box. You'll see inclusion when the officer corps changes. Uh, you'll see you'll see inclusion when actually the criteria for promotion change, right? Um, away from you know solely kinetic kind of activities to other kinds of things, right? So there's 
And these are deeper changes about, you know, who the army wants to be, right? What it wants to, to value that I think are, are really hard conversations that are only now um, just starting, I think. So we've kind of been talking about a lot of ethnic diversity, I think, um, racial diversity, and then obviously one diversity or inequality, if you will, specifically, specifically with the United States is income inequality. And I think you, you had just briefly mentioned it, um, that, you know, if you look at the, the Gini index, right, the United States is, is closer to, I think, China and Mexico than it is to its European or developed counterparts. So how does that economic inequality affect potentially um, uh, the military? And again, I'm thinking U.S. centric if you can, but feel free to take it, the conversation or response elsewhere. Yeah. And this is, this is one of the areas where we began. So like when I started the book, I said, man, there's lots of different kinds of inequalities. It would be really easy just to pull Gini coefficients off the shelf and then just, you know, plug them in and see what happens. And it turns out that's really hard because we don't have great Gini data both, both back in time and then for a lot of non-Western cases, which is what the book uh, actually focuses on. But I think in income inequality is bad for a couple of reasons, right? So one, uh, if you're, the bulk of your army is drawn from the lower decks of your society, right? The, the people maybe without good economic prospects and things like that. Um, you will get things like you see in Russia where you'll get high corruption, um, because the soldiers are seen as less than valuable, maybe. Um, they're sort of expendable. I, I hate using the term cannon fodder, but you see this in a lot of high income inequality countries where they draft from the lower portions of society. Those lives are seen as um, sort of easier to expend than the sort of richer classes. You get distorted recruitment bases, so it recruits from certain areas. You'll use your soldiers on battlefields in certain ways that you wouldn't if they were seen as full citizens of the society or if they weren't seen as cheap and easy to, to obtain. So you'll get strategies or tactics that are operational um, operations that privilege mass scale attacks, frontal assaults, because these soldiers are easily replaced. The other place where you see it is if the officer corps is drawn from a different economic strata they tend to reinforce the system, right? Because they tend to see themselves as above these other soldiers who they will then expend in the battlefield uh, and also take advantage of. And, you know, I keep coming back to Russia, but it's, it's, it's on everybody's minds. But if you look at like the, the officer corps in Russia compared to the conscript or the Kontraktniki um, segments, right? There's a very different economic classes. And I think that there's a high degree of corruption in part because the richer officers are basically farming out or exploiting the sort of lower class um, soldiers and because they're seen as lower class, right? They, they don't have to provide weapons for them or, or bulletproof armor, or they can skim the contracts, all this kind of stuff, because they don't care about these kids because they're expendable. And, and so, and, and then they fight that way too. So Russia, you know, most of the soldiers are drawn from certain portions of Russia. It's happening in the United States too. Look at where the United States Army recruits from. It's not across the country anymore. It's in, it's in isolated pockets of certain areas. That has something, um, you know, when, it, when you say, well, the country goes to war, it's really not. Only pieces of it are going to war. And that affects how you fight, affects how you use soldiers. So I'm watching the income inequality in the United States, you know, I think it's dangerous. Um, and I think it's dangerous for battlefield performance going forward, for sure. Uh, the United States has diversity. And you said that could be a strength. And it seems that the lesson then is to, from a military standpoint, 
is that we can incorporate different ideas and approaches to you know, war fighting or the structure of the military, build on that diversity. That can be a strength. At the same time, being very cautious to this growing economic diversity. Is it, would that be a fair kind of state of affairs moving forward or takeaway? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say, you know, bullet points are, you know, maximize diversity. So maximize your recruitment, both geographically, but across different groups, right? Empower these groups when they come in. Um, you know, one of the, the clearest findings we get in, in other areas uh, of academia, like from business studies or things like that, more diverse teams tend to make better decisions. They make faster decisions. Those companies that have more diverse um, uh, boards tend to be more profitable. They're more agile. So you think of what the future battlefield is going to look like, you know, in Ukraine or whatever. It's incredibly fast, incredibly lethal, highly decentralized. You need people who can work in diverse teams that make decisions really quickly under, under massive time pressures, right? So we should be maximizing for that future battlefield by trying to draw as diverse um, uh, an army as we can or a military as we can and then empowering them, so changing recruitment. Right. Uh, and, and sort of trying to preserve the diversity gains we've got right now. I mean, the thing that worries me right now is that a lot of them are diversity gains are not permanent right now. And it could be rolled back uh, as the political climate in the United States becomes more charged. Uh, yeah. yeah. Professor, aren't yeah. you being woke right now? I mean, we hear this term of wokeism uh, use and, and quite frankly, I'm, I'm still not quite sure. Maybe it's the academic in me. I still don't know what that actually means, you know, yeah. being culturally aware, but I, I mean, I think, you know, Mark Milley, um, uh, the, the, uh, the general chief staff, right. He was accused in, in congressional testimony of being woke. And I, I think his response was so poignant. They said, well, I want to read Mao. I want to read Karl Marx. I think we need to understand critical race theory and this role that it plays in a military. Um, I mean, what are, your, what are your thoughts on this accusation? You're saying that we should be more diverse and capitalized on that, but that's others would say that's being, quote unquote, woke. Yeah. I, yeah. I got actually, it's funny you raised Mark Milley. I got called out in a briefing um, as the patron saint of woke militaries which I thought would make like a great t-shirt at some point. Cause I, I agree. I'm not exactly sure what, what woke means, but also like, what's the alternative, right? Like you, you alternative woke is being biased, being blinded, but not reading. I don't, I don't know what the alternative is. So it's, it's sort of, to me, it's in some ways meaningless. The only thing that worries me is that as the label sticks um, and as a military, you've seen it become now become senior leadership become increasingly defensive about being woke. Um, that some of these sort of gains that we've made in the last say five years or so are going to be rolled back or, 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 you know, put on the back burner or things like that. And so, you know, I'm, I'm all for woke militaries, um, but not necessarily on, from, on moral grounds, but because they tend to win. And if you care about it, you know, effectiveness, you want to win these wars, um, then yeah, you got to embrace the wokeism, I guess, because that's, that's how you get there. And, you know, I, I find it just, deeply ironic that the people at the Tucker Carlson's of the world who, you know, quote and say, well, it's a woke military, we're wrecking it. And, and their paragon example of a military to emulate it was Russia's. That was all that they were doing in their thing. They're saying, you know, we need a more masculine military. We need to be like Russia. And, and then we're all watching Russia, the Russian army get it handed to it, you know, the last six months or so. And so I guess I don't know what wokeism means, but I just want the military to work. 
and no, but I, I think there's your next book title is Woke Wins. Woke Wins, yeah. You know, Something like that. Funny. When I did this book, I, I had a senior colleague say to me, when, and she said, well, what's your book about? I said, oh, it's about diversity and inclusion, you know, how that affects how you fight. And she says, well, who would ever argue against equality? And I was like, well, as a matter of fact, it turns out like lots of people do now and it's incredibly vocal. Um, and so I, I wrote this book very much under the radar screen, but when it came out, it just sort of coincided now with this cultural um, sort of pushback in the United States. And so I never meant to write a woke book, but it's been labeled as such now just because of the given um, political climate. I mean, you know, to the point, though, uh, or to counter that kind of movement, woke movement, and what you're saying is that, you know, diversity should be seen as a strength because that we can incorporate more ideas and more approaches to to war fighting. I mean, that, that goes to the whole point of, you know, the military academies and the warrior scholar, right, that these are our soldiers and our leaders at all levels should be very well read across many different disciplines. Um, and that enhances our war fighting capabilities by, by definition. Right. No, absolutely. I think the service academies are going to have a leading role in these conversations, whether they want to or not. Um, their, their students are wanting to have these conversations and, and, and they're kind of like the bridge between senior leadership and the, and the cadets. They're having these conversations now. And I think a lot of what the, the future direction in terms of diversity and inclusion initiatives is it, going to come out of some of the service academies, actually. They seem to be having these conversations uh, much more than, say, maybe senior leaders are and things like that. So I, I want to go back to Russia for a second. Do you see evidence on the battlefield today of Russia's underperformance because, um, you know, they are not being inclusive? Oh, yeah, I, for sure. I mean, I think... Um, yeah, so they have the, the diversity issue and they're not inclusive towards it. I mean, my, my Twitter feed now is basically a, almost like a, a constant scroll of like, look at what the Russians are doing now kind of thing. And so, I mean, you know, we, we've seen everything from um, ethnically Russian soldiers beating and hazing Muslim soldiers and not allowing them to pray, for example. And then we had a, a friendly fire incident where... Um, I believe he was either a Tajik, I believe he was a Tajik, uh, opened fire on, on Russians and killed 20 of them in a training um, depot before they were deployed to, to things like, um, you know, you have an officer corps drawn from one area of Russia and in the Kontrakniki drawn from other regions, particularly the, the Caucasus, who are treated as disposable, right, who are treated as, um, you know, cannon fodder. So they're not prepared. There's poor coordination. You send your soldiers forward in these frontal assaults. Um, we've seen now evidence of um, some units like the Wagner Group being used to uh, block the retreat from uh, non-Russian units to prevent them from escaping, which is kind of consistent with this high inequality um, that we see. Corruption off the charts, right, um, which is another sort of been consistent with um, with high inequality. So, what do you what do you see there? So, I've heard a lot about corruption, but what kind of evidence are you seeing about corruption on the battlefield? Yeah, so I mean, everything now from you know rotting tires on the trucks and because they've been sitting in depots and no maintenance to um, there's now the Ukrainian um, social media campaigns have been amazing on this. You know, it's showing what the 1940s era helmets are for the Russian soldiers as they're deploying or that their body armor isn't real body armor. 
or that the reactive armor on their tanks doesn't work, or there's not plate, it's just plates in it. There's no explosive charges. Uh, and it, it's so are you saying, are you saying that these things are evidence of uh, people stealing the real stuff and, and where's the corruption? Yeah. So partly, yeah. So part of it is stealing it and, and either keeping it or not deploying it onto the units because they're seen as less valuable, right? They're going to sort of soak up the Ukrainian weapons, right? They're going to send less, your less good stuff. Part of it is just a lot of the money never made it into the maintenance depots and things like that. So it's just siphoned off and it's on the oligarchs yachts and things like that. Um, it's in things like the pay. So there's been big issues with the soldiers not getting paid. Um, for example, which is why the Russian media has made such a big deal of getting, uh, you know, your family gets a lot of if, um, if your son is killed or things like that, because a lot of the payroll has been siphoned off within the military. But even, even before the war began, you saw a lot of corruption just in the sense of like using conscripts to, um, for non-military purposes, right? They were like a, like a labor pool for the officers to make money off of, right? Or they had secondary businesses, things like that. Um, I mean, the army was not in great shape before it went to Ukraine. This, these divisions were there. They were just exposed on the battlefield. And so, um, so the corruption is just an enormous piece of how poorly it's performed. But I think we miss it if we just focus on, like, how many tanks does Russia have or how many aircraft does it have? You miss the sort of the social elements behind it. Do, do you think that your thesis helps explain why so many people missed the actual combat effectiveness of the Russian army today? If they've yeah. been thinking about what you're thinking about, we wouldn't have said, hey, they're, they're the second best military in the world. Right. So, yeah, so this is totally easy for like, the author to say, if they had only read my book, we would have been in a much better situation. But it's true. If we had actually read it, we probably would have done better um, in, in our net assessment. So I've actually had an opportunity to speak to a lot of intelligence analysts since the war began and, and actually after the book came out. And I think academia looks at net assessment differently than it did. Like 10 years ago, even maybe five years ago, it was really still about bean counting, right? Tanks, aircraft, frontal aviation, the whole thing. But there's been a move in political science now to start studying like the softer things, right? Morale, combat motivation, coup proofing, these kind of things. There's a really great literature there. For one reason or another, and I don't know why, it hasn't translated into the policymaker space. There's so much money in like satellites to count stuff that it never gets into like the, the sort of cultural aspect, the language aspects, things like that. And it's just easy to overlook things like morale. And what drove me nuts when the war began, right, is I'm looking at the Russian army saying, I don't think this thing's going to hold together, right? It's going to have huge morale problems. But the people who study, you know, military effectiveness kept, who had a big voice on Twitter kept saying things like, well, morale, you can't measure Morale is intangible. How would you know until they start fighting? But you can, you can actually see it before the war begins if you're looking for it. But we totally weren't. And so we were like big name people were totally surprised because again, on paper, it was the second best army or the second biggest army, right? But inside it, it had all kinds of class, ethnic, racial tensions and divisions that I think just it was never going to be able to reach its paper strength because it had all of these pathologies inside it. And once the war begins, super hard to fix that on the fly. And Ukrainians have been amazing at exploiting these tensions. Have you been, what have you made of the sense of the, uh, you know, the OSINT out there on Twitter and everything else? I mean, it constantly blows my mind where I'm like every hour someone is sending 
a video that someone hold a phone up, held a phone up for of, of some massive demonstration in a mobilization station or something, and or or here's the here's the Intel, you know, here's the Maxar satellite picture. Yeah, I think I mean I think it's been I, mean, I think it's gonna be studied for decades. I mean, it's like phenomenal how much we're seeing of a battlefield and actually how good the Ukrainians are at weaponizing the protest, Absolutely. the state of the armor, the or the poor state, the capturing, you know, the tractors pulling the the, the BTRs and the BMPs and all that, whatever, right? I think that's um, been really, really well done. The thing that worries me as a scholar is that it is really this soda straw view of the battlefield. And we miss a lot of the broader patterns. And I think our comparative advantage is being able to step back and connecting the dots. And right now there's so much, like just a torrent of data coming out that I watched how the Twitter is going and it's, it's just like chasing the latest video and that, that sort of stepping back and taking the analysis and saying like, why does this matter? Why do we care? Is this really affecting dynamics on the ground is missing right now. And I mean, partly that's the problem of trying to do this in real time or near real time. But I do hope at some point we sort of step back and we, and we try and say like, how much did this really matter? And it's the same thing with the drones, right? Like we went with TB2s. Oh, wow. These are amazing. This is shaping the battlefield. When was the last time we heard about a, a Ukrainian TB2 strike, right? It just seems to have gone quiet. HIMARS was the next big thing. HIMARS has kind of fallen away. I think we're going to need a little bit of reflection just to see how important social media was. But from an observer standpoint, I mean, it's been, it's been amazing. Absolutely amazing. I want to thank you, Professor, for joining us on Impolitik. You've helped us learn uh, about what I think is a really uh, important role of understanding military effectiveness and the importance of diversity uh, within the ranks. And I think these issues will only grow in importance as the United States continues to diversify. So thank you for your time. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Now time for the debrief with Jeff and Matt. Without a doubt, I think the most interesting thing that came out of this interview was his emphasis on the importance of diversity in a military um, and how that makes for a much more effective fighting force, which is very much contrary to a lot of the political rhetoric uh, that you hear about, you know, wokeism in the military or, you know, um, diversity in terms of racial composition or the fact that, you know, military officers at West Point are reading, you know, Marx and Lenin um, and critical race theory, right? Um, and that is something that uh, Jason, I think, is pushed back on quite a bit, either in terms of his book or in terms of his other research or his, his speeches and media engagement is the importance of that diversity to have these different ideas and different peoples and different cultures, that different understanding um, makes for a far more effective fighting force, contrary to what this, this political rhetoric is saying. Oh, yeah, absolutely. When I when I uh, taught uh, strategic planning for the Army, we, I mean, this was this is part of, say, what you would, this is part of the curriculum, right? And it was part of the curriculum saying you have to have actual embodied diversity around that table because people have different lived experiences which allow them to see the world differently, to, to understand nuances in the, in the political battlefield um, out there. This was in the curriculum. Why? Because it's in the business school curriculum. That's directly where we pulled it from, right? If you want to compete in business, this is what you have to do. Same as if you want to compete on the battlefield. And I think 
What's funny is the political critics have this view of what, what goes on, right, in military training, in, these, in, the, in professional military education, that's just not true anymore, right? And, that, and that's what Jason is, is bringing out uh, and to the forefront. And I think it's, it's so important that he does that because it's so important that, that the audience, that I'm sure isn't reading his book, uh, you know, are the, uh, are the you know, political officials that should be reading his book. But hopefully somebody will listen to the podcast and then get his book and, and somebody will do better. You know, I, I I think for us that when we study, um, you know, uh, the military and national security, I mean, we we know uh, that critical thinking uh, is such an important role in training our officer corps and and, and our, our soldiers uh, as well. It, it's such a critical component of it uh, of learning history, of learning philosophy in different views, and and that's that's something we kind of alluded to in the interview as well. The different aspects of uh, components of an effective military. It's not just simply you know your your military resources, your hardware, your equipment, your manpower. Uh, it's not just simply your strategy and and written doctrine, um, but it's that third component of the intellectual and moral um, and morality of your fighting force. Um, how uh, uh, how cohesive are they? Uh, how intellectual and well-read are your soldiers and your officers? How well do they understand their adversary? Um, and those are all critical components that we understand very well in national security. But again, I don't think when you you hear or see these accusations on, you know, say, social media about a woke military, right? Um, I don't think those individuals who are levering those, those, um, those criticisms really understand the nature of what it entails to create an effective fighting force. We, we quote Clausewitz to end, right? War is about politics in the end. And so if you don't understand politics, you don't understand uh, how identities are formed in your, in your enemy's culture, in your enemy's nation, or in your own or in your own military, you're behind. Well, we, we encourage everyone to definitely check out uh, Professor Lyle's book, Divided Armies, uh, highly recommended. Uh, we also want to thank everybody for listening to this episode on Politic. Please be sure to like and subscribe for future episodes. And please be sure to give us a rating as well. It really helps us out. Thank you very much, everybody. And until next time, thank you for listening.